Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Wesley Doyle of the band Pimlico. Wesley goes into great detail about how the band were formed, those early gigs, getting a record deal, and lots of other fantastic stories and anecdotes from his time in a 90s indie Britpop band. And it's great to hear a different kind of perspective on that era. So I really appreciate Wesley giving up his time to speak to me. As per usual, I'll be back at the end of the interview to talk about all the ways that you can support the podcast. But let's get cracking with the interview. So here's Wesley. Welcome to the podcast, Wesley Doyle. How are you? Hi, Chris. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm a big fan of the podcast and going back and listening to old episodes and um, been really enjoying it. We were talking a little bit off mic then about um, what you've been up to. And um, I always like to ask the, the dreaded question uh, as well about the last sort of 12 months and things and how it's affected the guests that have been on the podcast. But have you re kind of kindled any sort of interests or anything or you kept busy? Uh, well, I, I am a, I'm a freelance writer, editor. So um, initially, no, not really. I think it's, um, and, you know, I, I tend to work myself and I, I work from home mostly. Um, I was doing some commercial work that took me abroad and obviously that that stopped uh, pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, I was just uh, just at home doing doing what I do. I think um, you know I, I guess it does make you look inwards a little bit and sort of assess what it is what it is you want to do um, with with your work and what what you can do. but on a day-to-day basis it hasn't really um, changed that much. Uh, uh, I think it has for my kids more than me. I think they're they're getting sick of the sight of me. I think. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, we're here to talk about Pimlico. Yes. And uh, before we we sort before we touch on sort of how it all started and kind of where you see yourself sitting in the sort of nineties Brit pop and indie scene. Um, what was it like for you growing up with music, and and how did you kind of uh, know that you wanted to pursue music at an early age, or if you did at all? Uh, well, my my parents had me quite young, so you know I was um, I was born in uh, in nineteen or at the end of nineteen sixty eight. So I kind of grew up in the seventies, listening to the music they liked, and they they had quite good uh, taste. I mean, they used to listen to Neil Young and David Bowie, Elton John, uh, Kate Bush, Jamie Mitchell. Um, so I kind of grew up in a house with a lot of you know really good music so when it came to be my turn to you know sort of start imposing my my own taste upon them um it was it was quite difficult really because uh, I'd, I'd listen to all the stuff that people class as as classics but um yeah when I was I was a kid of the 80s so I was a pop kid really so Adam and the Ants, Toya, Duran Duran, Terence Trent Derby, Julian Cope, The Cure, all that kind of stuff um I, 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 lo- I loved all that stuff and uh yeah, I never really wanted to be a musician. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a rudimentary guitarist at best, um, but I, I think I just wanted to be a pop star. I just sort of looked at looked at those people and thought, yeah, that, 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 that would be a good thing to do. <laughs> so when did you think the ball started to drop in terms of you thinking this could be something you wanted to pursue and, you know, maybe getting down to some sort of songwriting? Mm, well, I, I used to work in a record shop. That was like the first, the first job that I had. And um, there was a guy in the record shop who he he had his own bands and he was a musician and would make his own demos and used to bring them in to play to the shop in the shop and I, I, that was the first time I made a connection that like you know normal people could could make music yeah I mean because as far as the people I used to see on TV it was like they'd been beamed down from you know 
Mars or something. And, uh, and it was this amazing talent they had that normal people didn't have. So I guess I was about, I was about 17 or 18, I think. And that, that was the first time I'd, I'd met somebody who could, who could make music. And then I'd, I'd sort of set about trying to find people who, who would facilitate that. And, and wouldn't mind me shouting over the top. So uh, yeah, it was um, it was like trial and error. I was in plenty of uh, horrendous, horrendously named and horrendously sounding bands <laughs> throughout the kind of eighties um, and uh, early nineties. In terms of being a frontman, then, I mean, did you? Lots of the guests that I've had on the podcast and just people in general, singers in general, say that they, you know, they put on this kind of persona, and I guess that is a is a it does benefit having the ability to do that. Was that something that you kind of would would uh, try to do as well? Yeah, it was, it was Dutch courage, really. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I was I, I used to be quite shy. I mean, it, but um, yeah, I mean, it was it was just. I remember the first first gig I ever did. It was it was quite it was quite a big played quite a big venue at um, it was the Square in Harlow, which was like a really really nice venue. It's not there anymore, but it was um, it had a really good PA and there were a lot of people there. And I, and I remember just having to almost like self-talk to myself in the mirror, you know, sort of, because I was so terrified. But I think once I did it the first time and then I came on stage and it was such a massive buzz, um, that kind of out, outweighed any sort of nerves that I had. But I think, I think as, as I got more, you know, as, as, as you play more and more bands and you start, you know, to do showcases and you're trying to attract the attention of labels and that, I think a certain, a certain amount of uh, sort of persona building sort of comes into it I mean the, the thing with Pimlico was I'd, I had a very definite job to do in Pimlico and um and you know, what, what I did in the band reflected that and so you approached these guys that were already established in in like a three-piece and said you know I can sing for you and, and take you somewhere in a different direction and, and how, how did that come about well I mean I, we all come from Hertfordshire even though <clears throat> the band's called Pimlico um like uh Pete and Pete Twyman, the guitarist, Andy Lewis, the bass player. Uh, they're from Watford and Miles Chapman, the drummer, and I are from kind of North Hearts. So um, they, they were in a band uh, called The Upshot in the late 80s, and they were kind of like a power pop band in the same ballpark as 530 and Boys Wonder. Um, and they used to regularly win Gary Crowley's uh, demo clash on GLR radio. Um, mm. And they always had people, you know, scouts going to see them play and A&R people, but they, they never sort of managed to get a deal. Um, and I, as I said, I'd been playing around with sort of lots of other bands with similar lack of success. Um, but it was, a, it was a little scene and we all supported each other. We'd go and see each other play and we were all friends. And I think, um, you know, I, like Andy was and still is like a very well-respected DJ and I'd go and to hit the, the clubs that he would play at, like Wendy May's Locomotion and he was starting up this new club called Blow Up um, that was based uh, in Camden, in a place called the Laurel Tree. This would be about 1993, the end of 93. Mm. Um, and by that point, I was a big fan of Suede and Pulp and the auteurs. And, and I really wanted to get that kind of band together. But a, a lot of people I knew were much more into sort of grunge and rock. So I, I basically turned to them and said, you know, I've seen you play. You're really good. Um, but you need a focus, you need a front man, I'll join your band and sing your songs. And, uh, and that, that was kind of it, really. And what, what was their initial reaction? Was it positive? I mean, or did they sort of look at you and think, hang on a minute, who's this <laughs> guy? To me in horror. I said, yeah, <laughs> I, need, I need to get your hair cut, I think, was what, what, what they said. Um, 
but uh, no, I think it was, um, I, I think, you know, we, we were in our early 20s, we'd, we'd been around the block a few times. I mean, for, for me, there was definitely a sense of last roll of the dice, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd been in bands for seven or eight years and not, not really got anywhere. And I had um, an option of going to university in my back pocket. I'd been deferring a place at university for about 10 years or something. I, well, maybe not that long, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of, I mean, my, my thing was like, I'll, I'll, you know, let's go out, let's play for a year and then I'm off to university. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it didn't quite work out that way. And those sort of early sort of rehearsals you were doing in, and sort of sessions that when you were kind of trying to find your own feet and sound, I mean, <laughs> what were they like? Are we kind of, did you kind of um, realise that you were onto something in terms of the sound or did it take a lot of work? Um, well, it was, it, was, it was quite simple, really. I mean, I, I think like um, I, I suggested doing that and then Pete came forward with um, a, a bunch of demos that, that he'd done of some new songs that, that he'd recorded that he didn't really have anywhere to put them. And uh, we listened to the demos and we thought, yeah, they're great. So we just, we just played those. I mean, I, I think the first gig we did, we only had about six songs. So, um, you know, we just did those and then did them again, I think. <laughs> yeah. but it was, um, it, it was it, you know, I'd, 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 I'd like to sort of stress that um, it, they, they, they were quite well formed, you know, they, they had um, everything going for them, you know, like Pete is a really good songwriter, Andy's a really good songwriter. Um, it was just, uh, you know, they, they just didn't seem to be getting anywhere. And I could see, like when I used to go and see them play, I was thinking like, you know, you, you kind of need a, you need an adamant or a, a Julian Cope up front, you know, that's, that, that would be, you know, that, that would really take them to the next level. And, um, and uh, thankfully they agreed with that. And so you kind of got success quite quickly then in, in terms of like getting uh, A&R guys that coming to gigs and, and a little bit of interest, which is quite of, kind of what everyone really wants deep down, even if they say mm. they're not doing it for the, for the recognition, but what, what that must've been pretty exciting at the time. Yeah, it, it was, but it's also, there was also an element of like, okay, <laughs> it was about time. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean? yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, I, I, I think, uh, even though it happened quickly for that band, there had been, um, you know, sort of like six or seven years leading up to it when we'd all been spectacularly unsuccessful. Mm. So um, I think like when, when it happened, it was like, okay, right, so this is where we need to be. Um, and it was great. I mean, you know, I, th I think because we we were a, a little bit older, maybe, you know, sort of about 22, 23, it was uh, we were a bit more measured about it. I think we could we could take a step back and think, OK, so let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Mm. Um, and, and we were a little bit more we weren't, we weren't cynical about it, but I think we were just a little bit more um, grown up about it, maybe. But it, in terms of like generating that sort of live live following, which is kind of what you know every band is hungry for, um, mm. did you have a, a trusty fan base? I think I mean it, it was already there, really. I mean, I, I can't I can't underestimate sort of Andy's connections with um, Blow Up, really. I mean, uh, you know, he and Paul Tunkin, who founded Blow Up, um, had been the DJs on Blur's Part Life tour, um, and you know, and by the time uh, blow uh, by the time the Ali Pali gig came around in October I mean it was just you know like Britpop was there wasn't it it was just mm. you know Mixware were had appeared from from nowhere and um it was just uh there was like a ready-made audience really 
and and we started playing at, at blow up you know um like uh, the first few gigs or i think our second or third gig was at blow up and they used to play, have bands playing in in the corner and um i mean even though it was, it was still quite a quite a small thing it could have been more than you know 100 people there or something um they you know they they were just looking for new bands that kept, that could fulfill that uh that, that promise of the club really and, and and we were quite closely aligned to the club like for better or worse um and uh you know the people who went to the club would come and see us play when we we played out so yeah like getting people to come see us wasn't really a problem in london at least i think when when we started playing outside of london that was a that was a slightly different story <laughs> because you say you didn't technically tour but you did plenty of gigs well you did as many as many gigs as you possibly could in and around yeah. the country so did you struggle to get gigs outside of London or was it something that just because of what was happening at the time and so London centric, it didn't seem as important? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it took um, it took a while for for Britpop, you know, for want of a better word, to kind of percolate outside of London. I mean, it, it, it was it was a very London centric thing. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, there, there, there were kind of kind of pockets. Um, like like Brighton Beach up in Leeds, you know, which was uh, which was a, an incredible um, Britpop club. I mean, you know, if it's if you were not there, people were even more rabid than they were in London, like mainly because they didn't have that kind of um, you know uh, sort of capital city call that, that people seem to think they need to have in London. Mm. Um, you know, but uh, there there were quite a few little pockets around the country, and we would we would normally go and play. On a on a Britpop night, or we would go and support um, another band that we knew who who were who were sort of playing. So we, we played like Bath Moles Club and the Road Menders and you know all those all those kind of um, sort of like smaller venues. Um, and we'd either you know Andy would either DJ uh, after we played or would be playing on their own Britpop night. So that's that's kind of how we did it. I mean we we never had um, we never signed to a promoter, so we didn't have somebody sort of saying to us. You know, this is the best way to go around the country. We would like zigzag across, yeah, hundreds of miles and making absolutely no money. But it didn't really seem to matter. I mean, we just like going out and, and playing. Really, it was it was what we wanted to do, and it was why we we started doing it. So it wasn't a problem. You signed to a, a small indie label, and, mm. and and then was everything sort of record ready essentially at that point? Um, well, I mean, we we used to. We rehearsed um, so much. I mean, I, I think one one thing I, I will say about us as a live band is that you know we were really really tight. You know, we we you know it was essentially a three piece with a singer, so they 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 could they had that kind of power pop, power trio thing going. So um, you know we were like very tight band. Uh, like Pete, Andy, and Miles have been playing together probably at that point by you know for about ten years maybe. So they they were really um, in, in simpatico and uh yeah we we you know we just um as soon as we had an opportunity to go into a studio as you say it was a small label um called vinyl japan who are a, a kind of japanese label that set up an office in london um and they didn't have much money and they didn't want to spend any money <laughs> so <laughs> they they kind of chucked us in the studio um i think the first ep was kind of done yeah i think it was done over like two days or something i recorded four songs in two days we just like went in and just sort of like bang them out um and they they sounded how we sounded live with a couple of overdubs and some backing vocals really 
off of that, that first release or their first EP, you started to get some decent radio play as well. Or had that already been happening before that? Or had you like managed to get your foot in the door on some of the radio stations and things? Not, not really. I mean, I mean, again, it was it was something that just just kind of happened. I mean, we we had things like a press agent and a plugger, kind of later on, um, but for that first single, um, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, <clears throat> I just remember like, like somebody um, said to me that they'd heard us on the radio um, on the evening session. So obviously you can go back and listen to it again or anything. So we just had to sort of sit in front of the radio every evening, just hoping that. Uh, that it would be played again, and and it and it was, and then um, and then it was played on uh, Radio One. I think Kevin Greening played it on Radio One, and then Radio Two, and it was like, yeah. I mean, it, it had nothing to do with us really. It was just that, like all of a sudden, um, people started playing it, and and that was that that was down to like uh, Joe Wiley and Stephen Mack really. It's funny, isn't it? You would think that they would try and find a way to contact you first to let you know that you're being on the you're being played on the radio because nowadays you kind of get that you get that pre kind of um, promotional kind of notification to say that you can, you know, you get people to listen in. And I suppose, yes, in those days, you just have to wing it in terms of being. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I can't sort of stress, um, you know, how uh, useless the record label was <laughs> in, in, in the nicest, nicest possible way. I mean, they, <clears throat> they, they were used to putting out um, these kind of freak beat compilations and, uh, albums by former members of Gallon Drunk. Uh, and, you know, to, to have a band who's being played on Radio One, uh, they, they didn't know what to do really. It was, um, I think they were as surprised as we were and, um, and panicked. <laughs> you got to, to sort of uh, record with some great producers as well. What, what was that like? Did you have like a, a wish list of people you had <clears throat> to work with? Yeah, producers wise, I think, uh, I mean, John McLaughlin, who we worked with on the first couple of EPs, um, he was Thurman's producer and we'd done some shows with Thurman and we'd met John and, uh, you know, he was, he was up for doing something with us. Um, and more importantly, he was quite cheap, <laughs> <laughs> which was important for the record label. Um, but no, he, he was great. I mean, he's, uh, his career, I mean, unfortunately he's, he's no longer with us, but, um, he was in the Rosillos. He played for Della Mitri. He was, he was like a proper sort of session player. He'd been around the block a few times and um, he had uh, a guy called Charlie Francis uh, who engineered for him, co-produced with him. And Charlie had been in uh, Toya's band um, back in the early 80s and he'd worked with R.E.M. and all sorts of people. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they, they were just they were just really great. You know, they, they'd seen it all and, uh, you know, and they, they were quite cynical. So, you know, we, we quite like that. Did they let you do your thing or were they in terms of producing you? what kind of support did they offer um not much really i mean i think it, you know i think because of the, the the amount of money we had and and the speed at which things were done i think they they just came in and treated it as if they were just recording a band live really um i mean i, mean, I think as as things progressed uh, especially when we came to do the album with them later um you know we started being a little bit more experimental um for better or for worse but um, yeah, those, those first two EPs, it was just like, get in, get the tracks down, get them out, you know. I'm quite fond of, of those first two EPs, um, you know, because they, they were the first things that, that we did as that band. But I think the, the third EP we did, um, the sort of Bubbles uh, EP, we decided to go with Pat Collier. I mean, we, we actually, we had a list of people we wanted to work with, 
Um, and Andy Partridge was one of them, and Pat Collier was another. And um, and I, th I think both of them agreed to do it, but I think we were, uh, uh, we were a bit sort of wary of Andy Partridge because he'd kind of, I think he produced Blur or some early demos for Modern Life is Rubbish. And, um, and we were always getting compared to Blur, um, you know, not, not, in a, not in a good way either. <laughs> so, we, so we thought, oh, well, you know, well, if we go with Andy Partridge, then we're just, you know, we're just sort of um, playing into people's hands. So we thought we'd go with Pat instead. But I mean, Pat had worked with Boys Wonder and House of Love and Voice of the Beehive. So, you know, that, that, that was all sort of like late 80s, early 90s stuff that I, that I loved. I loved the sound of those records. So, um, yeah, and I, I love the record we did with Pat. I, I think it's the best thing we did, personally. And then you got some, um, well, an opportunity to, to do a video, a pop video, <laughs> which is a, another uh, a milestone in any <laughs> band's uh, wish list, I'm guessing. Um, but yeah, yeah you, had, you struggled to get that, <laughs> that done, I'm guessing, in time from what I, from what I read. It was a couple of weeks after our first EP was released and... Uh, and the chart show got in touch with our label asking for a video because um, they'd, they'd put it in quite high in uh, their independent chart. I don't remember the chart show on Saturday mornings, they would show little clips of, um, of videos and they had their own, you know, they had like a dance chart and uh, an, an indie chart, a soul chart. And yeah, and, and we'd, we'd gone into their um, independent chart and, and they wanted a video and obviously we didn't have a video um record label just you know aghast that we they might have to pay for one <laughs> so um so you know they, they did eventually find some money like down down the back of the sofa um uh, for like a live video so we were gonna like they, they were gonna come and film um us playing in a club um and they they found uh, a, like a production company based in london um so you know we, we just basically had to hastily arrange a gig um, for them to come and film uh, but unfortunately we had to do it after we, we had a, a, a bunch of dates booked like three dates um, couldn't have been further away from each other so we, we played we headlined the marquee on uh, on the Wednesday I think and then we drove up to Bath to support Thurman uh, at the Moles Club and then from there we drove up to Leeds to play Brighton Beach uh, the Britpop Club in the arches up there Mm -hmm. And then the next day we had to drive back to Hertfordshire where we'd arranged this gig so they could come and film us. And uh, so I think, I think we did about 600 miles, I think, over four days. Um, and we, we were absolutely knackered by the time we, we got to do the video. We were just shattered. But, you know, we were kind of on a roll. And, uh, and um, yeah, it was, it was you know, we, we got it done and they, they played it on the chart show. And it, it was played a few times. I think it was on MTV, 120 Minutes. And... Uh, on the Big E, do you remember that program? Late night TV show on, on ITV. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, we got it done, but as, as, with, as with everything with Pimlico, it was done on the cheap and we got it in by the skin of our teeth. You had another sort of uh, anecdote that I was reading earlier on about drinking it uh, before gigs and things like that. Is something, <laughs> every kind of musician, uh, well, learns a lesson in, in terms yeah. of alcohol consumption. Um, and were you were you were you boozers uh, before gigs? Was it for Dutch courage, or was it just sometimes just because of the the, the um, work that you were doing? Uh, it was only sort of really sort of Pete and I who who drank um, because we didn't drive. Um, I'm happy to say I do drive now, but, <laughs> but, but it just didn't you know it, it didn't seem important to drive back then. 
but uh yeah i mean it's it's it was it was just one of those things it was you know you when, whenever you play these kind of small shows invariably you know you're playing in in a club that has a bar or you're playing in a pub that has a room out the back and you go there and you've got a sound check at five six o'clock and you're not on till nine half nine um and there's a lot of time to kill and I, I, you know I, I don't think we had the uh, the self-discipline to uh to, to keep away from the bar but um yeah after that that particular we, we played at the uh, marquee cafe in greek street in soho um i did you talking about that the the, the graham cox and yeah yeah well yes. yeah but it's kind of it's a bit i guess i, I should add a caveat that obviously in, in light of you know graham's uh, struggles with alcohol um like maybe the story isn't as funny as it as it was at the time but yeah. um but yeah, so yeah, we, we were playing at the Marquee Cafe, which is a, a venue that's not there anymore, on the Greek Street in Soho. And we had to sound check at like sort of five, five o'clock or something. And we weren't on till 10. So we decided to like nip over to Camden to go to the Good Mixer for a drink. And Graham was in there. And obviously Andy knows Graham from the Park Life Tour. Um, so we all got chatting and, you know, when... It, time came for us to leave and go and do the gig he, he decided to come along um of course he was when we got to the venue he was absolutely mobbed like the great escape had, hadn't been out for long um blur were like one of the biggest bands in the country um so he he kind of had to sort of hide around the side of the stage um uh because people were just you know like hassling him really um and yeah by the time we came to play you know i mean we'd, we'd been drinking for about four or five hours <laughs> so we were all of us were like sort of quite quite drunk um and about halfway through uh, i'd noticed that graham was kind of signaling to andy and pointing to pete's guitar and apparently he wanted to get up and play with us uh you know, which would have been fantastic for our profile um but probably not for the people who paid to come and see a half decent band play so um uh, luckily, Pete is left-handed and all his guitars are strung uh, accordingly. So, um, yeah, even Graham can play a guitar upside down. Uh, but he was, he was quite keen to give it a go, though. <laughs> With this whole thing about drinking drinking on stage and drinking before gigs and stuff is something that you, you kind of learn your lesson on, don't you? I mean, in terms of we, we did it all the time. And then uh, I think my trousers nearly fell down at a gig in Southampton and... <laughs> you know you get promoters coming to the front of the stage saying you know you do need to get off right now because we do have other bands to come on and you would just be sort yeah. of merrily playing along and um but yeah it's it's it, i kind of think it's one of those rites of passage though isn't it for any kind of like young band to just sort of get slaughtered but usually i think i used to put it down to um to nerves really because yeah yeah you know when you're thrust in that situation and you've got other bands playing on the bill and they potentially are a lot better than you mm. i think i think that's when for me that's when i used to drink too much i think it's just through just sheer pet oh, i was just petrified <laughs> yeah, yeah I, th I think it was as i said at, at the top i mean it, there was a certain amount of dutch courage when i started out but then um i mean after after that show we we introduced uh, no more than three points before playing. um and like i say I mean, if, if you're if you're sitting and you know if you're playing a, you know if you are playing in bath or you're playing in southampton or you're in um edinburgh or something and, and you you're sound checking late afternoon and then you've you've got you know five or six hours to to kill and you're in a pub it's really difficult um but and, and nothing's open you know you can go and get something to eat or whatever and then and then what you know just sort of you know wander around bath for like three hours <laughs> but I, I think you know eventually as you say every band 
comes to that realization. But you know, I have to say, it, the the scene, uh, for for want of a better word, was quite a boozy one. Mm. You know, it was. Um, you know, you you would go and see bands like regularly playing absolutely plastered because you know, because everyone, you know, a lot of people thought it was the thing to do. You know, sort of uh, like um, as as Britpop kind of morphed into a more kind of laddie um sort of like sort of boozy sort of football-y type of sort of crowd i mean it was it was almost expected that you know the lead singer would be just as drunk as the crowd was but how, how did the band kind of come to an end um well we, we never really sort of split up i think we just you know and again i think maybe it was because we were you know we we did have quite a few years experience of the industry before we we got signed i think um you know we we could tell that that the focus had shifted um you know it was just uh people you know people stopped coming to the gigs um it was it was difficult to get any coverage uh, it's difficult to get radio play and you know also our, our record label were kind of had, ne- had never really stepped up to the plate with regards to promotion and stuff um you know they they wanted us to do an album we didn't have an offer from anyone else so we kind of went with them i think the budget for the album was you know just as much as it was for one of the eps so you know we had to sort of get 12 songs out of the same amount of money that we used to have to get four you know i think when when you join a band um you know you, you think about getting signed you, you think you've reached the top of a ladder but what actually happens is you get a deal and then you're at the bottom of another ladder <laughs> and you've got to climb that ladder and i think we just didn't get very far on that on that second ladder really i think um it, 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 to my mind, it, it kind of changed overnight. All, all of a sudden, um, people didn't want interesting uh, little sort of quirky pop bands anymore. They wanted big, lumbering, uh, sort of sixties-focused rock bands, and, um, and we just we just weren't one of those. You know, I mean, we when we, we recorded the album, and you know, we we tried to uh, experiment a bit and do lots of different things, but. Um, but yeah, it was just no, like nobody was interested. The record label wasn't interested. I mean, I mean, we, we were quite lucky that it, it was actually put out. I mean, I know quite a few bands who recorded second albums uh, or and first albums that that were, that were never released. You know, like off the top of my head, I mean, I think like a band like Ballroom, for example. Um, you know, they they recorded an album that that never came out. Menswear had a second album that I think only just came out in the UK uh, last year or or the year before. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, all, all the air went out of it. I think I, I, I remember like like Johnny from Menswear saying that, you know, as, as soon as the, the the major labels kind of sniffed that there was a bit of money, they just basically hoovered up all the bands, hoovered up all the all the indie labels, and then when they didn't get the return they wanted, they just walked away, um, and which you know decimated the the independent label sector and left loads of bands with you know sort of albums um that they'd recorded that nobody wanted to put out so it was it was a it was it was kind of like a bloodbath really i think for a lot of bands you got material though that you you kind of thinking that you might do something with next year is that right uh, well yeah well this this has been sort of like like dragging on for for ages really <laughs> <laughs> it, um, i mean what what happened was that you know uh, i mean like the album came out nothing happened with it and we we realized that we needed to have a bit of a rethink so we kind of but you know by, by that point we were 
we were like, um, I think we were like, we were a seven piece. We had like a two piece brass section, the keyboard player, uh, as well as the four of us. So we, we sort of slimmed down to a three piece and started demoing for a second album. And, you know, we, we had a, a, a little bit of interest from a couple of labels here and there, but nothing ever, ever happened. So I think like Andy um, had started playing with Spearmint um, and Pete was playing with uh, the Four Stories, which was um, the, the guys from Thurman's uh, new band. And, you know, we just kind of just parked everything. I, I went to university. I sort of started a career in journalism. And, um, you know, we, we had a bunch of songs and they just kind of sat on the shelf, really. And then uh, I guess we ran about 2005, I think, like Andy got a deal with Acid Jazz. And so a few of those songs that, that we demoed went on his first couple of albums. Um, and then in 2008, Andy joined Paul Weller's band. And, you know, that actually created a bit more interest in, in what he'd done previously. And obviously part of what he'd done previously was was Pimlico. So, um, you know, we, we started doing a few bits and pieces and always saying that, that we were going to put something out. Um, but the, fir the first thing that came out was uh, the Red Inspectors album. So the Red Inspectors were Pimlico plus a keyboard player called Alex Lee Richards, uh, who played with the Blue Tones. Um, and an album, but it's, but it's virtually an instrumental album. There, there were a couple of vocal tracks. Uh, an album came out on Acid Jazz and we did a couple of shows to support that including a, a really great show at the Borderline. Um, and then in 2012, uh, Andy wanted to take his solo stuff out on the road. So we went out as the Andy Lewis experience um, and that had myself and Mark Morris from the Blue Tones and Andy Ellison from John's Children and Jess Roberts on vocals. And that, that was really good. That was like a rolling review show, you know, with uh, different singers and lots of different cover versions. Mm -hmm. um, and then... Uh, Sort of following on from that, I mean, Andy and I put a single out in uh, uh, in 2012 um, called "The Best of Days," which was uh, an old Pimlico song that, that we resurrected and re-recorded. Um, that that came out on Acid Jazz, and uh, yeah, so you know we've, we've we've had things sort of come out over the years, and we've you know we've been to Weller's Studio, Black Barn, and we've recorded some more stuff. So um, yeah, we've, we've we've got tons of stuff on the shelf, but it's just kind of you know, getting getting uh, getting the wherewithal to to get it finished and and to kind of decide what what channel to to put it out there. You know, be, you know because we are used to putting stuff out physically and we're used to having you know sort of like a, a, a physical object for people to own. So we have put some stuff up on Bandcamp and you know some stuff is up on streaming sites. But I don't know. It doesn't really feel real to me unless unless it's you know impressed up on vinyl <laughs> yeah yeah but that that's kind of like old-fashioned attitude but but, that, uh, but that's the kind of thing that is so popular at the moment is bands you know looking at archive stuff or just releasing stuff in in uh, in vinyl or, or other medium or physical media and then putting a little bit more effort into other aspects of it that they probably wouldn't have been able to do you know many years ago and uh, yeah well that, i mean that's what happened last year was when um martin green uh put a compilation together um, called Supersonics uh, 40 Junk Shop Britpop Greats. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he chose our track Revolve um, and put that on there with, you know, people like um, Mr. Weekenders and David Devon and Menswear. And it, 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 was, a, it was a really good little compilation um, that basically sort of showed that 
pre Oasis pre, you know, kind of like laddie Britpop side of things, you know, where, where Britpop came from, which is, you know, it came from blow up, uh, it came from uh, club smashing, and it had a real art school kind of background feel to it. And I think, I think sometimes that, when people talk about Britpop, that kind of thing is, is lost, I think, you know, I mean, it was, a, it was a really interesting, arty little scene. It was very inclusive, you know, it's very diverse. Um, it was, you know, there, there were a lot of women involved in, in those early days of Britpop, um, you know, not just in, in the clubs, but with the bands as well. I mean, I think it was, um, that kind of thing is slightly overlooked when people talk about it being this kind of like boozy, laddish thing. I mean, like to, to my mind, it, it wasn't that at all. You know, it became that, but to me, that's, that's something different. Is there a chance we might get a, a, a pressing then in, in 2022? Well, I, I, I would like to do, do something, something with it. I mean, it's um, you know because it, it, it's just it's just sitting there. I mean, yeah, I've done a few sort of uh, like radio interviews and uh, and where, where I've I've sort of sent some of the new songs and and, and they've been played and, and that kind of thing. I just think it's um, you know I mean we, we could stick it all up on Bandcamp or something, but I don't know. It it, it just seems like it it can fall through the cracks there. So it, I mean even if we sort of put it up on uh, streaming services. I, I think we'd, we'd want to get some kind of campaign behind it just to let people know that, that it's up there or else, or else it just gets lost. But, you know, there, 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 is, um, there is an album's worth of material uh, that, that needs to be sort of finished off. And, you know, when, when that does happen, uh, I would like to put it out onto the, the Pimlico name because it is, it is the four of us. Um, but I guess it's just waiting for a time when we can all <clears throat> commit to to promoting it but um you know whether that's 2022 or you know 2032 i don't know <laughs> i mean it's um yeah we'll have to wait for some suitable anniversary i guess well it's been uh, a fantastic to speak to you Wesley, about uh, pimlico and everything you've been up to and um uh, thanks so much for sharing all the all the stories and anecdotes uh, of your time uh, with the band and obviously looking forward to hearing new stuff fingers crossed <laughs> well, thank, thank you for asking me uh, to, to come on it's been uh, yeah it's, it's been a good workout for the memory <laughs> <laughs> i mean when, whenever i sort of talk about this like the, the main thing I, I i try to get across is that it, it was such a vibrant time it was yes. a really really exciting time um like before uh it kind of went mainstream it was just you know you could it was cheap to live in London. It was cheap to go out. You could go and see some really good bands. You can go to some really good clubs. You could be in a band and people would be quite happy to come and see you. Mm. Um, it, was, it was just like really exciting. And I think it was uh, like, like for me, I, I got a sense of, I kind of found the music that I should be playing. I think that there, there's an element of, you know, if you do want to have a career as a musician, you, you kind of chase things a little bit. Um, but I think when, when this whole, you know, what, when, what became Britpop kind of kicked off, like for me, it was, it started with Suede, you know, when I, when I heard the Drowners, I was like, man, that sounds like Adam and the Ants, you know, and mm. it's like, I've, and I've not been as excited about something probably since Adam and the Ants had come out. And it was, uh, you know, the, the music we were making, it was really keyed into, those bands we listened to when when we were in our early teens, you know, and I think that's what I found the most rewarding is that I've managed to play the music that I would have loved to have listened to when I was 13 or 14. And, yeah. uh, and that, that's what I'm the most proud of, I think, is that 
you know, I, I was kind of true to, to the music that, that I loved when I was a teenager. And I think, I think a lot of bands were, you know, it was, it was the same with Blur. I mean, we're, we're the same ages, same age as them, you know, the same as Pulp or whatever. You know, they, they weren't trying to be something or be somebody else. They were trying to be true to themselves. And I think um, that, that was a really exciting thing. Massive thanks to Wesley for taking the time to speak to me uh, on this episode. It was a really fascinating insight into what it was like to be in a band, in that scene, in that moment. So there's loads of ways you can support the podcast. It would be fantastic if you could do any one of these things. Support me on social media. So just search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. If you want to contribute financially that is also amazing because it costs a little bit of money to run the podcast and you can do that by buying me a virtual coffee and there's a link in the show notes to this episode also what else really helps and i know i keep banging on about this but it is true if you can go to the apple podcast app or the apple podcast like desktop site and give a five star rating if you think the podcast is worth five stars obviously and um, four stars is great but five stars is better and if you've got time, do a little review. That triggers something in the algorithms of Apple and it just bumps the podcast up and potentially gets it seen by a bigger audience. But your support has been amazing so far and I'm so chuffed that everyone's tuning in and all listening every week or whenever these episodes get put out. It's an absolute pleasure to do them and long may it continue. So I'll stop waffling. That's my favourite thing to do. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next episode. Take care.